Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In season six, our disease films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit, some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big. Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> we talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. 
and we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're back to Kelly Reichardt, who strives to teach us that Oregon's had a corner on weird since 1845 with her 2010 Western Meeks Cutoff. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And terrifying new thing, Andy. Bum, the Next bum, Reel bum. is officially <laughs> on Patreon. Whoa. Uh, wow. What do you make of this Patreon thing? You know, if it's one thing I keep hearing from people, it's Andy, Pete, how can we start throwing money at you? <laughs> I mean, really, that's that's what they all are saying, right? You are a dynamic profiteer, Andy Nelson. <laughs> you are a capitalist's capitalist. Why can't we throw our money at you? They're, they're going to be making my statue on Wall Street soon. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, all of these things were said by no one ever. Uh, but we've been doing <laughs> we've been doing. This show for a long time since 2011, and um, you know we've never uh, we've never had a place for direct support for like straight up public radio style support. And I I know I am a supporter of a number of podcasts and YouTube creators on Patreon myself, and it it just got to be a little bit painful that we've been doing this for so long and we are we are working so hard to kind of create and cultivate a community and uh, it it is becoming notable that we are doing it for free don't you think like <laughs> we're starting to notice and feel some financial pain points with the things that we want to do that we want to grow and want to do all sorts of new and wonderful things and and it's it's starting to it's starting to hurt it's much more than it was you know when we first turned on the mics in in 2011 and started talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark you know and and um now we're trying to bring new people in and we're trying to support the people who are creating with us and and um and, and frankly, recoup some costs. And so that's why we are on Patreon. All we're doing is putting it out there. I mean, if, if you know, people want to uh, contribute, uh, contribute, if they if they don't or if they, you know, don't aren't able to at the time, I mean, it's fine. I mean, we're doing this because we love it. We want to keep doing it. Like Pete said, this is really just a way to kind of show us that you appreciate it and that uh, that uh, you're enjoying it. And it's certainly nothing we expect, but uh, if you th- can throw something in there, uh, yeah, check it out. That's right. We had the way it is set up on patreon.com slash the next reel. At this point, there are a number of tiers like there always are. You don't have to do a tier. You can, you know, do anything you want. Many Patreon, there, there are two ways to support on Patreon. You can either do it by the publication. Like if you support somebody who produces a YouTube video once a month, you can support every time they produce a video. That doesn't really work for us because we tend to produce a lot of shows, whether it's, you know, one, two, sometimes more a week. Uh, and so, you know, right now we have a, a monthly model set up over there and it starts at just a buck a month so if you want to throw something in but as andy said we would much rather you make sound financial decisions than support <laughs> us so That's if right. supporting us also means you are making sound financial decisions uh we appreciate it and um uh, so anything you want to give the better uh, there are a couple of perks uh, at different levels, things like uh, you know anybody who joins us on Patreon is automatically invited to join the back, uh, the back of house uh, Slack channel that we've got going on there. So if you want to chat with frequent uh, frequent contributors, commenters, hosts on the show, um, 
please do that. Uh, you can you will automatically get an invite to Slack. You can uh, there there is a tier where you can join us and get the uh, the the behind the scenes draft podcast feed. If you don't like getting the shows every Tuesday and Thursday, then you can join and we'll give you the drafts podcast feed. So you'll hear you may hear us cough and wheeze and say long-winded <laughs> long-winded things that we, that we later come to our senses and cut uh, you'll get all that all that delicious podcast <laughs> podcast errata uh, and uh, and so there, there there's that's another thing there is even a tier and there aren't many of these there is even a tier in which Tommy Hansom will sing a song for your voicemail outgoing message and let me tell you the delightful part, we haven't told Tommy Handsome that he's doing this. So this should be a surprise for everyone. There you have it. It will be it will be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Uh we're also, you know, we've uh, for those who have ever been curious about merchandise, yeah, we're still thinking about merchandise, updating the merchandise, and uh, I'm sure that Patreon members will get some sort of a perk when uh when merchandise hits the shelves again. So there you go. That's it. All right. Enough in, enough about us and money. What do you think? Yeah, let's keep done? moving on forward. All right. We're plowing in. Uh, we got a blot spot this week from the show. Ben Lott, who uh, Patreon members can also talk to uh, in his blot spot channel on the private Slack group. What about that? I've already done product placement. <laughs> there you go. I definitely cared about the main character in Wendy and Lucy. Her struggles were familiar to me, even if her situation was not. I just have trouble connecting on a deeper level when I'm given so little information or backstory. The story plotted at a very slow pace, and I only tolerated it because I thought some big reveal was coming. When the end was depressing instead of illuminating, I was seriously turned off. Not a bad film, just not one for me. Your rank 275, my rank 241. I tolerated it because I thought there was a reveal coming. (laughs) Man, wait till you see Meek's cutoff. That's right. Uh, that was, uh, that's interesting. Um, and I, I think, uh, uh, mirrors some of our comments, uh, last week as well. You know, we, we did get a, a series of, let's say, uh, yes, I, yes, I think love letters to the book of Eli <laughs> right. over on Facebook. <laughs> How do we do? Yeah. Listener of the show, Ron McCall, uh, sent us a few notes over on Facebook about, uh, how we kind of missed the mark about Book of Eli. Um, and, it, you know, it was actually pretty interesting. I will say uh, it, there's a lot that he wrote here, so we're not going to read the whole thing. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, let me just read this first part here. You both are missing the mark with Book of Eli, especially with what it's what is taking you out of the film. It's not about being believable or realistic, whether or not Eli can do what he does while being blind, fighting, navigating his way, interacting with others, etc. It's about suspending belief or believing, depending on your beliefs, if that makes sense, The point is, God is using him as a vessel. He states that something led him to the Bible. And, okay, so I think that there's something to that. And I know that that Eli brings that up uh, throughout the film, how he's been doing that and all that stuff. I definitely know it's in the movie. Um, I still found it kind of hard to believe. Um, But, you know... It did actually kind of make me go, you know, it's it's definitely worth a rewatch. I mean, it is a really fun film to watch. So if nothing else, I'm just like, you know what? I, I, I want to watch it again just to kind of think about it a little bit more as like the, the hand of God being there kind of guiding Eli along and making these choices and everything. 
I, I realistically, I don't think that's so much my issue. And like I said, if Eli was wearing glasses the whole time, I don't think I would have had as much a problem. It's the fact that when Denzel takes his glasses off and it just, he doesn't, he doesn't seem blind, you know? Yeah. It's just one of those things. Yeah. That was, that was actually my problem too. I really appreciate that he noted that symbolism. And frankly, as people who watch films and tend to be, you know, work to be observant of symbols, particularly religious symbols, we should have talked more about that because it's a really good catch. I, my challenge is, uh, like yours, I, I still find it hard to believe because of the performance, the way this character was performed. I don't think it actually makes good even on this sort of newly reframed promise. But even more importantly, I think it's really hard to watch a film uh, like this with sort of, or at least it demonstrates for me why it's so hard to watch a film with completely new eyes. You know, it's hard for me to unsee what I've already internalized as the challenges of Book of Eli. And this is a film I really enjoy. So um, anyway, uh, I, I think the more important part that he wrote, which I noticed you didn't um, read, uh, is that <laughs> what? Damn it! You two weeks I, in a row. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I just want I just want this out uh, because I think it's important. Uh, he says in the end, Pete, just know on the rarish occasions when you and Andy disagree, I side with you fifty one percent of the time. Shush! Don't tell him I said that. Asterisk margin of error two percent. Whatever, we'll disregard that last point. <laughs> Let's just celebrate the fact that I've got two weeks in a row, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why yada? Not Andy, feeling the time. love, man. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Ron. It, it's uh, uh, it's <laughs> love, love the comments, man. Thank you so much for writing in, and uh, great to have you over on Slack. Uh, okay. Uh, let's, uh, I think it's time, Andy, let's do trailers. I think you should go first because I've, I've pulled the red band roll. <laughs> <last two weeks. laughs> you every single week. <laughs> yep. <laughs> My film, Andy, is The Journey. This is a highly, when I gather by the YouTube trailer comments, a highly fictionalized account of the story of the uh, political enemies of Northern Ireland. Um, This is the uh, Sinn Féin, Martin McGuinness, and uh, Democratic Unionist Party leader uh, Ian Paisley. Uh, Now, it it took, what I understand it took, and I don't know, I, really, I don't know anything about the the real history here. I haven't looked into it at all. I know the, that it is referred to as the Troubles. It, it is a, an incredibly challenging and um, uh, deadly 20-year period or more in, in Northern Ireland and this sort of search for peace. And all of that is compressed uh, into a, uh, a car ride. Uh, it's essentially a road movie where these two political leaders are put in a car and are driven around Northern Ireland until they come to terms with um, each other and and learn to appreciate each other and and bring peace. Now, what I understand is that didn't happen. I'm picking this trailer for a couple of reasons. First, John Hurt is in it. Oh, man, I miss John Hurt, right? Uh, Second, Timothy Spall plays Ian Paisley, and man, does he look great. Uh, lost a ton of weight. He just looks great. Uh, and uh, the great Colmini uh, plays Martin McGinnis and also looks great. I think these guys look great together. I'm very excited to see them on screen together. And, and some of the comments on YouTube, which I think YouTube is really known for its uh, reasoned 
uh, and and <laughs> subtle and nuanced commentary. Uh, they called just the general style of performance some really mean things, which you know again surprised me. Um, so I, I I disagree with it. I think it actually looked great. But the the bigger thing is, and I we usually have challenges when uh, you know when when true stories are so heavily fictionalized. There is some challenge in there for us to watch these films. And my pitch with this trailer in particular is. Is this not just the kind of story we probably need right now? Uh, that has the door opened to me for this kind of highly fictionalized story. And and uh, you know there was co- one comment from a from somebody who says you know and again YouTube is also known for its credibility. Uh, this person says I knew some of these people. And the story that this film tells was not actually that far from the truth. So I don't know. But between now and when this film launches, or when this film is released in the United States, I'm very excited to learn more about it. It was a part of history where I was too young to really uh, have a dog in this particular fight. And so, um, you know, I'm interested in learning more. It's got an incredible, uh, from the looks of it, incredible cast uh, directed by Nick Ham, written by Colin Bateman. This looks like the first kind of big thing from Nick Ham and Colin Bateman. I don't know much of their work, uh, but they uh, appear to be. Uh, local guys. They are uh, from Belfast and and Bangor, County Down, Northern Ireland, UK. There you go. Uh, what do you think? Did this appeal to you? It does. I, you know, I feel bad because I am not, uh, I, I'm a little blind to this little piece of history. I don't, I think I kind of missed the whole thing. Although it wasn't that long ago. You make it sound like it happened when we were kids. It was, uh, my understanding is it was 2006. Oh, I, I that was not uh, that was not my understanding. I thought it was uh, from the, like through ninety eight, like seventy eight through ninety eight. Looking on Nick Ham's uh, Wikipedia page, uh, it it says um, the drama is a fictionalized account of political enemies Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness's real journey to peace and friendship in the two thousand six St Andrews Agreement. Interesting, interesting. Okay, but see, that's why I love films like this because it does illuminate a piece of history that I'm not aware of, like hidden figures, things like that. I really enjoy. Yeah. Despite the fact that there may be uh, inaccuracies in the way it's told, I think oftentimes it's the spirit in which it's told that it's it's trying to get across the the realities of the situation, even if they change some of the facts. So uh, I'm I'm inclined to see this one. It does look uh, pretty interesting and enjoyable. Interesting, just reading about it, it sounds like the original cast, what they were uh, planning to move forward with, was Liam Neeson and Kenneth Branagh. Which, right. uh, what do you think of that? That's a really interesting pairing. <laughs> an interesting pair. I, I love that idea. Um, but obviously, it didn't move forward with that. Um, Nick Ham, I guess he did the cult uh, or the film that kind of got some cult acclaim in 2001, The Hole with uh, um, Thora Birch and uh, Kira Knightley, which um, for, I, I don't know if I, I feel like I've heard of this one, but I don't actually know. Uh, I don't. I don't know what it is that I heard about it, other than I think it was because it was really Kira Knightley's kind of breakout film. Um, but anyway, that's something that he was behind. Um, I don't really know much else about these uh, the filmmakers though, so I am curious about this and the piece of history. So, um, I will say though, I really had a hard time watching Timothy Small and his fake teeth in the trailer. <laughs> I I could not stop staring at them. It just looked so fake. So. I, you know, or, or I, I hear you, but you got to look at the real guy you, before you make I that did. kind of judgment. No, he I looks did. just like him. 
he, I, I don't know, the teeth, it's no matter what you say, the teeth still throw me. So <laughs> I'm curious to see how it comes when I'm staring at him for an hour and a half. So <laughs> you're, you're the worst. <laughs> That's going to be what throws you for this movie. That and Denzel can actually see. Nobody bought that. Ugh. Note to self, don't me. ever see a movie with Andy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Andy, we cannot see this movie together when it uh, when it uh, releases officially sometime this year. And I wish I could tell you more. It is already played at uh, the uh, uh, San Francisco International Film Festival. It opens in the UK May 5th, 2017. So it's coming, uh, but no specific release date for the journey here in the US. Well, that sounds great. My trailer, Pete? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds great. Let me just move past yours. <laughs> oh, no. But it's just because I'm so excited, Pete. Mine is Thor Ragnarok, which the, the <laughs> teaser dropped uh, today, which it's, I mean, it's really kind of a trailer. I mean, they give you a lot of the story. They give you a lot of the images of, of characters and everything. And I've got to say, man, I got so excited <laughs> about this movie. It looks so stinking fun. It looks like they took a little dash of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, kind of some of that vibe. You got just uh, you know, kind of that great comedy that that Thor has shown throughout kind of the different films that um, that he's been in. Taika Waititi, as soon as I knew that he was directing this, I just got super excited because I, I really enjoy some of the films that he's made. I think he's a really creative director and a lot of fun, and I think he brings a lot of fun to this. And I think Marvel has done a great job of finding directors who bring fun to their movies. Um, now, here's a little uh, quiz for you, Pete. Of the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, what number is Thor Ragnarok? Can you, uh, <laughs> you want to venture a guess? So wait a minute. Are you asking me in the whole Series of Marvel movies, yeah, or in just in the, the Thor movies? In the well, it's easy in the Thor movies, which one it is in the whole series of movies in the MCU. What installment is this film? Do you know? Jesus, is this like nineteen? It's close. This is seventeen. They, wow. This will be the seventeenth movie that these guys will have cranked out, and it's impressive that they. I I feel like they're often moving in directions that feel stronger and better. And this is really exciting for the Thor uh, franchise because I, I really have enjoyed the Thor films despite some of the issues that we've had with them. Um, but this one it just looks, it looks, I mean, this is kind of a Thor taking place in his world. I mean, it's really, it's Ragnarok. I mean, this is kind of, uh, this is the story when uh, 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 Kate Blanchett, who is playing, uh, what's her name, Hela, she is the ruler of hell and Niflheim, uh, and she uh, was released from her prison, and she's been, I guess, pretty pissed because she's been imprisoned for so long, and now she basically says she gets this weapon, and she's able to destroy Thor's hammer, and she takes over Ragnarok and imprisons Thor, and I, I can't quite tell from the teaser exactly what's going on, but I think that she pretty much sells Thor to Valkyrie, or trades him to Valkyrie, who is working for a Grandmaster, played by Jeff Goldblum, who looks crazy in this trailer. It's just, like, perfect. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and he is, like, this guy, like, Game Master guy who puts Thor in the gladiator ring opposite none other than Hulk, who pops up, which was super exciting to see, so... I just got so excited watching this. It's just, it looks so stinking fun. It just has so much life and energy. Uh, of course, we have Tom Hiddleston returning as Loki. Benedict Cumberbatch pops up as Doctor Strange. Idris Elba as Heimdall. 
Uh, I already mentioned Kate Blanchett, Chris Hemsworth, of course. Uh, Carl Urban is back. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, Tessa Thompson, Mark Ruffalo as Hulk. Uh, it's just a huge cast. Ray Stevenson. Um, so I'm very excited. I think it's going to be just super, super fun. What did you think? I didn't expect you to uncan un like to loose your enthusiasm on yeah, this trailer. You have you have really <laughs> brought your A game in terms of your childlike whimsy. I once I he was out of that box, Pete. Man. I've not been able to get him back in. <laughs> you can't get him back in. <laughs> uh, not you know. I'm with you. I I am looking forward to it. I thought the trailer was was funny and it it did all the things. Thor has never been my favorite um, property, and so I I was not as giddy as you were when the trailer started. But what I really like about this trailer is that uh, I I feel like this film at least looks like it's really owning what Thor is in my head. Right, it feels like a the the most um, easily identifiable Thor film of those that have come before. Right, we're just gonna go totally open, flamboyant. We're gonna be bright colors and big planetary battles, and some frankly a little bit questionable, maybe unfinished CG in the trailer. Uh, we're just gonna go all in and go for the humor, and then. They did the bit when Hulk comes out and he says, yes, I know this guy. He's a friend from work. If there was ever going to be a line that really, you know, hooked me, that's the one. Uh, I thought that was super funny and and uh, and charming. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, in terms of what's coming in 2017-18, Black Panther is still at the top of my list. Spider-Man shortly after that. Uh, but Thor is, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be, oh, it's yes. better. I'm looking forward to it more now than I was before I saw this trailer. So trailer worked. <laughs> Check. <laughs> well, this is going to be, uh, it's, it, you know, over the course of a week, it's pretty much going to surround the entire globe, uh, starting in Italy, October 25th, ending in Hong Kong, Turkey, and the U.S. on November 3rd. It's just going to circle the globe and uh, everybody will be buried in Thor Ragnarok. Uh, so there you go. Looking forward to this one. Here's a tough question that was posed to me by uh, a listener of the show. If you had uh, the opportunity to see only one MCU film uh, through the course of 2018, which one would it be? And just for reference, I'm going to give you the choices if you don't have them in front of you. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, May 5th. Spider-Man Homecoming, July 7th. Thor Ragnarok, November 3rd, Black Panther, February 16th, Avengers Infinity War, May 4th, 2018, Ant-Man and the Wasp, July 6th, 2018. If you could see only one, which would it be? That's super mean. Um, yep. I feel like I would say, well, okay, I feel like I should say Avengers Infinity War to close that loop. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I know is going to be super, super fun, and I'm really excited for that one. Spider-Man's like my favorite comic book character. I feel like I want to pick that one. Uh, but weirdly, I actually feel like I'm going to say Ant-Man and the Wasp because, <laughs> <laughs> because I loved Ant-Man so much more than I ever thought I would. And I knew nothing about that character. Just so much fun. And I feel like weirdly, like I'm really excited that they are making the uh, sequel to the Ant-Man movie. So uh, I, I weirdly feel like that's what I would pick, which I don't know if is the right choice, but that's what I'm going to say. 
I I appreciate your choice, Andy. That's a bold choice. I know it uh, is. I know. I I feel like I'm I, I may be equally bold, and that you didn't even mention it as even an underdog uh, on your list is Black Panther. That's the one I'm most curious about. I feel like all the other movies, I pretty much know what I'm gonna get. And Black Panther, I just don't. I don't really know what I'm going to get. So I'm. I think I'm most excited for that one. Thank goodness we don't actually have to make this. Uh, this Sophie's choice, so to speak. No, absolutely. Says Pete, completely diminishing Sophie's choice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I actually do really want to see Black Panther too. I I just know so little about that character or that world that I guess yeah. that's why I didn't pick that one because I just like Black Panther. Other than the the brief bits popping up in Civil War, I just right. don't know anything about Black Panther. Well, and to your point about Avengers Infinity War closing out that loop, I I'm, I wonder just how close that loop's going to be. This 2019 is a May 3rd release date for an untitled Avengers film that is once again directed by Anthony and Joe Russo, that is once again written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. It doesn't really feel like we're closing out anything on that series. So, Yeah, it's going to be kind of a, I, I'm guessing, a kickoff for a Phase 4, perhaps? Yeah, whatever it is, Andy. We're all just playing our parts now. This was written long before we got here. I am at your command. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Well, if it's riches you're after, there's riches plenty. That's the truth. You mark my words. <laughs> Meek's Cutoff, Andy, 2010. We're back with our friend uh, uh, Kelly Reichardt, uh, writer John Raymond, uh, who did the screenplay and stars Michelle Williams again, uh, Bruce Greenwood uh, as the titular Stephen Meek. Will Patton is back, and he's still fixing wheeled vehicles. Uh, Zoe Kazan, <laughs> Paul Dano, Shirley Henderson, Neil Huff, uh, some other folks. Uh, it, this was... Um, uh, it is the story, it is, it's a fictionalized, loosely fictionalized story of settlers traveling through the Oregon high desert in 1845 uh, with a, uh, what they imagine to be, or and slowly learn to be, a fraudulent guide. And they, uh, they are in some, some harsh conditions, and they run out of some important, you know, liquids, and, uh, and therefore uh, there is stress. <laughs> How did Meek's cutoff hit you, Andy? How did it hit you, particularly uh, as a follow-up to last week's film, Wendy and Lucy? It's interesting. I had only heard high praise for Meek's cutoff um, going into it. Um, So I kind of was expecting to get something much bigger than Wendy and Lucy. Um, uh, I mean, that got a lot of high praise, too. But I guess it just seemed like Meek's cutoff was like uh, something that I just heard on a number of critics who really just loved it and everything. And so I was kind of expecting uh, something that's kind of a little bigger, especially because it's a period piece. There's a lot going on uh, in the particular story that they're telling here. But I ended up feeling like it, I mean, it's funny. All I could think of when I finished this was, you know, when you teach writers or when writers learn, they say, okay, get in late and, and get out early. Uh, you know, when you're writing a scene, because there's a lot of fluff at the beginning and end that you often can cut out because you just don't need it. It's just padding for your scene. I kind of felt like the filmmakers here took that to heart. <laughs> they just kind of did it for the whole film. And I just felt like, <laughs> like they really, like they took this whole concept of a storytelling in media rest where you kind of, you know, starting in the middle. And they just kind of left 
in media res also. So we get this story where it's already started. We are already in the process of this wagon train on kind of on this cutoff that they're taking uh, through the desert uh, to get around something or to move faster along the Oregon Trail, something like that. Uh, and uh, and we the movie ends before we even get to the conclusion of the story. So for me, it was it was pretty unsatisfying. I wasn't very thrilled by the the film going experience. I, I can kind of see what the filmmakers were trying to do. But on the whole, I was unsatisfied. The way I was looking at it was that, that there's something different uh, between dramatic context, which is what this film to me is longing for, and historical context, which is what this film delivers. We see this family going through the struggles in a historical context, which I get the feeling that they want us to care about because history was challenging and look at the the struggles of our forefathers and mothers and look at the kinds of things that happen on the road. But in the absence of, but that doesn't inherently or intrinsically create a dramatic context. And I, I feel like this film is pretty much totally void of dramatic context. Absolutely. Even when we have a moment where uh, Michelle Williams' character, Emily, uh, kind of confronts uh, Meek with uh, with her shotgun uh, to prevent him from killing the Indian, um, it, I, I just didn't feel anything. I didn't care. I mean, it's it's I mean, it was it was kind of an interesting moment, I, I guess. But I, I just didn't there was no connection I had with these people. I understood that they were frustrated with Meek and that they couldn't tell if he um, uh, was lost and wouldn't admit it, or if he kind of knew where he was going, but wasn't very good at it or what? I mean, but the fact that, um, that it leads to that moment, it's just like, oh, okay. I mean, it really just, the whole thing kind of fell flat for me. Is this, is the film missing a third act? It's, it's hard to kind of pinpoint that when you're looking at, at this film. And, and maybe it's just going to be something in general with Kelly's films is, is she even using, or John as the writer, using kind of the three-act structure when they're putting a story together? It just feels very much like they're just kind of telling this little piece of story. And I mean, it does kind of feel anticlimactic. And I mean, we get, I, I felt to when I watched the, the film, that, uh, that line that you used to kind of start us off, I actually felt like was kind of exactly what they were trying to say here. You know, the whole thing, uh, we're all just playing our part now. Uh, this was written long before we got here. Uh, it's I kind of got like, oh, that's that's kind of what she's trying to say. And now we we end on a shot, uh, you know, of the Indian walking by himself. That was kind of, I guess, maybe where they were going with it. Um, but I don't know. It's like, is that enough for a climax of a film? Um, is that kind of constitute a third act? For me, it didn't. And so I can see what you're saying, that it doesn't feel like there is a third act, but I was just like, is there even an act in here? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I definitely, I, I, I don't know, When if you step back from the dramatic context and we look again just at the historical context, some of it is the story, sort of the, the cultural story of the role of women uh, and the the transformation that women have been, you know, going through over generations is sort of put under a microscope 
on this journey across the Oregon desert. And uh, I, I found that interesting. It wasn't enough, but I found it interesting that this was a trans story of transformation of these women, the wives who went from eavesdropping on the, their husband to becoming sort of a, a much more active, taking a much more active role in their own sort of destiny, the destiny of their their companions and their travelers. And, and um, uh, you know, I thought that was interesting. But again, it wasn't enough to sustain my interest throughout the film. It took a couple of tries to get through it. As the story progressed, I, you know, it made me wonder what was really going on in the real story with with Meek and these and these uh, settlers. Like, how much of this did they actually pull from uh, from the real story? Because I mean, you know, when you research it, it says it's loosely based on this historic incident. Um, so, how loose was it? I was curious. I mean, you know. I, the whole idea you've got this this moment um it's funny just kind of researching it and looking stuff up about this particular uh journey and i mean this whole meek cutoff it is a real thing stephen meek you can go look at uh, read all about him there's all sorts of stuff written about him um but you know there's a moment that uh, that you had uh, mentioned in our notes about how paul dano's character is carving lost onto the wood which i thought was uh kind of interesting um, but I really didn't know why, other than was that a weird screenwriter's way to say, hey, we're lost without saying we're lost? It you know, it seemed kind of odd to me that that's the direction they chose to do that. Um, but then at the same time, when you're looking at Meek, uh, the kind of images and stuff from Meek Cutoff, there actually is a carving in some wood that there's a photo of this where somebody actually carved it. And I thought that was actually interesting, although it's completely, uh, you know, it doesn't say lost. It's the date, 1845. It says, it looks like it says 1845, Josta Meeks. And I don't know what that actually means. I don't know what Josta is, but it's interesting. It's like they threw that in because it's historical, but there's no context for it. And again, that just goes back to the just general problems of the film. One of the things I think they do really well is allow the um, the the atmosphere, the landscape, to become a, a an active character in the film. We talk about this sometimes, where the setting is that is a sort of mysterious, you know, activist character, and and they really do. And I I, uh, I don't spend a lot of time in this part of Oregon. If you're not familiar with it, it's it's way out east, and and Oregon is. You know, it's it's not the biggest of states, but it's big enough that we actually have a number of different really dramatic climates like this, this sort of Westfall, unincorporated kind of Harney County, Mallard County. Um, these these places, you know, range from uh, farms, ranches to just straight up high arid desert. And um, and and I I feel like they did a nice job of, of showing um, you know, of demonstrating that and the role that the the terrain has on um, on the journey. Uh, it's only when you kind of look at at where this place is on a map and watch how and look at how far it is from ultimately where civilization ended up, which is mostly you know near the coast uh, of Oregon. You realize how far these people were from anything, right? Uh, relating to lush green the things that you normally think of 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 Oregon you know terrain uh, so I I liked that part of the story but again uh, I feel like I have a, a sense of that because I live here and because I know the terrain of my state uh, I wonder I mean how did how did that hit you did it mean anything to you did you find that of, of substance no and that was so frustrating <laughs> 
as as a period piece that's based on fact, it's like I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. And but you know, I, I think it goes to what Kelly and John were really trying to accomplish with this film. They weren't really setting out to tell a story of like the true story of of Meek's cutoff. They were just really telling kind of a period piece that was really reflective of how difficult it was to take these journeys. I mean, that's really kind of what they were doing. And if that's what they were doing, why use the real story of Meek's cutoff uh, in the first place? Why not just tell a fictional story of life on the Oregon Trail and how hard it was? Um, For me, it was so frustrating because I couldn't really learn anything about Meek's Cutoff from the film Meek's Cutoff. I had to go read about it after the fact. And, you know, I don't know. I guess that was just, you know, that frustrated me. So John Raymond, again, uh, is behind the script. Do you get a a sense for how, you know, any additional points on sort of his narrative structuring of the film? Uh, And again, particularly in comparison to the strange um, kind of joint writing partnership they had on Wendy and Lucy. I mean, uh, what what's your sense of the overall narrative? For me, this really felt much more like a short story uh, than a movie. It, yeah, I, I was curious if this was something that he had been working on as a short story and couldn't quite get it to work and it's just like, oh, you know what, I'll just write this as a script or yeah. exactly kind of what the origin was because it wasn't something that, that was in any of his short story books. This was an original screenplay that he had written. Um, maybe it was just a piece of history that he was interested in and thought it would be interesting to tell this story. Um, again, it's I, I just don't... I mean, I, I appreciate the the way that elements happen within the film i actually found it interesting enough to kind of kind of go along for the ride so to speak um uh you know i liked kind of some of the scenes some of the character interactions the way that people spoke felt uh it had kind of an authentic feel to it um i enjoyed all of those elements with it i just i just didn't feel like there was a, a good sense of connective tissue really tying everything together i didn't feel like there was a good way to really get a sense of who these characters were like you said I didn't know who to care for very much. It was, you know, other than them mumbling about how they didn't trust Stephen Meeks and that the men are over there deciding, you know, they're, if they're going to if they're going to uh, hang him or whatever they were doing um, and uh, going to the ending when it's just like, you know, they're still on their journey. I just I, I didn't feel like I don't know. It's like they're trying to do a story. Um, I, I, I guess I don't understand what they were what the point of this story was. Like, why did they choose this chunk to tell? This is another minimalist film, you know, in, in terms of Kelly Reichardt's style. Uh, and and I certainly get that. I, I worry a little bit that, I'm, I'm lying, I'm not really worried. I think that the, the minimal style uh, impacts our ability to learn, as you say, anything about the, the actual period that we're trying to, to assess here. But I also wonder if she was ever, if there was ever really an intention, and I found nothing on this, if there was an intention to teach, um, you know, anything historical about this, or if that's just, uh, that just became, the setting just became a vehicle to demonstrate the sort of diversity of, you know, characters and the general sort of arc of social good uh, in this group at the, in this time. Well, if you look at what we talked about a lot last week with Wendy and Lucy, it really boiled down to the minimalist storytelling style used to emphasize um, the characters, right? I mean, that really kind of was her focus in Wendy and Lucy, was really getting into that internal struggle of Wendy and her journey to survive and to uh, find Lucy. 
in this in this particular film, I I don't know. I guess I, I th- thinking about that and and where what characters I really start uh, getting a sense of. I mean, you do get little bits of the character. So I will say, you know what, the minimalist style that Kelly uh, obviously likes to work in, it does allow for some character moments. Um, weirdly, though, I found myself so much more connected to Wendy in her journey than I did to any of the characters here. I, I just, I, they were all, they there was kind of a, a realistic sense to them, but it wasn't anything... Like they they chose character moments that I didn't I wasn't able to really connect with. Like you know I was kind of fascinated watching the scene where where um, Emily is throwing uh, bits of furniture out of the back of their of uh, of their wagon as she and her husband Solomon are talking about kind of what to get rid of to lighten the load. Um, you know they throw out the grandfather clock, they throw out a, a rocking chair. It was an interesting little scene and. I liked that, like, they depicted that moment in time of having to make these decisions about what to get rid of so that you can lighten the wagon so that your your cattle don't die so that you can actually keep moving along and, and not die yourself. Um, but again, it, there, wasn't, there wasn't a good context for it. It just kind of happens. And while I enjoy the, the moments of the characters there, it never connected me to the to the story or to their real struggle. I will say that was one of my favorite sequences, if only because of the way it was shot, right? Shot sort of through over her shoulder through the the wagon and the long lingering choice to stay on the rocking chair as it sort of gets smaller and smaller on the horizon behind us for just a little bit too long. Uh, I thought it was a really great choice. And, and some of those little treatments were particularly interesting in what is otherwise a, f- a fairly static, you know, we'll talk about the camera choices, but a, f- a fairly static camera. Let's talk about first shot, last shot. Yeah, the first shot after we, I, I will say I really enjoyed the opening title card where it looked like the title had actually been stitched into leather or something. Yeah. Uh, Meek's Cutoff and Oregon 1845 stitched. Um, but then we cut to, uh, it's a nice wide shot of the wagon train rolling through a big creek. And the last shot our friendly uh, Native American walks alone, directly away from camera. Very wide shot of the uh, of the scrubby high Oregon desert. That's really the end, and it's again. I think it's just a. I think it's a straight hard cut to credits, right? No, it dissolves. Or is it, it long, it's one of those long dissolves. Really, it's not long quite dissolves, as long. But it's not as film. long as the long one. But yeah, it's long. Yeah. Uh, so there we have it. Is there is there a nice connection? Uh, between the journey here, does this give us the the uh, a great uh, narrative cycle between the first and the last shot? I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be grasping at straws here um, because I just don't know exactly what she was going for here. But in the beginning, you have the whole team, um, the, you know, the, all the different people in the group kind of cutting across. You see everybody as they kind of roll through this creek across to the other side. In the end, you get this Native American who's kind of walking them away. And, you know, Meek's last night line is talking about how, um, you know, we're he's, you know, we're following him. He's the one now who's kind of in charge of, of all of us. And his decisions are going to be making, uh, making uh, you know, we're either going to be live or die based on the choices that the Native American makes. Um, so to that end, it's like, OK, so it ends on. the just the solo shot of the native american walking away so it's like so is he representative of the whole group now i 
I'm not sure. I don't know if there's, I feel like there's, there's a reason. And actually I really liked that last shot. It was a really kind of, um, beautiful shot, but I just don't know if I really saw the connection. I'm with you. It's lovely. Uh, but I, but I don't get it. Um, or at least I'll say there's nothing that really was intuitively, uh, easy to grasp. The, the casting again was done by Laura Rosenthal and uh, we've got Michelle Williams on board as Emily Tetherow. Yeah, not a lot to say here. Uh, I, I think that uh, it's interesting the way that they wrote it. Again, uh, nicely based on kind of the kind of the uh, giving us a sense of the history. The women were kind of um, not speaking as much as the men. When they were speaking, it was mostly uh, in and amongst themselves or quietly to their husband or something like that. And I thought it was pretty interesting the way that they portrayed that. And Michelle Williams, I thought you know she did a great job in this part for what it was. I, I didn't connect with her as much as I did in the more contemporary uh, Wendy and Lucy. I, I found it harder to buy her in this period. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm not sure if that's a function of, you know, script or a function of just, you know, I know her too well in other things uh, or, or what, but I, I just, I, I had a hard time understanding her struggle, uh, you know, as a character. So, and, and it didn't really feel like a Michelle Williams movie, right? I mean, I, I came into this thinking, well, this is a, this was kind of, this was much more of an ensemble piece than I expected it to be. Just a couple notes about her is first, you know, I just kind of cheekily wrote down that, well, at least she speaks more than Jason Bourne did in his last film. Yeah, um, which, <laughs> that's actually very which funny. Wasn't saying much because, uh, you know, you know, she just, you know, there's not, there's, there's not a lot to her part. It's a lot of just kind of being and and doing um, throughout this film. Also, to your point about her, a better sense that she was kind of really the one leading the the story. The movie poster um, always is kind of I don't I don't know. It struck me as a really odd movie poster um, because it's kind of this weird yellow color, and she's. Um, uh, you know, it's it's the shot of her holding her gun as she's pointing it at at Meek, but it's it's kind of a drawing of it, and I I never quite figured out exactly what they were going for with a poster. It was just kind of strange. But again, it's like, hey, it's Michelle Williams. Check out this Michelle Williams movie is exactly what the poster seems to be advertising. But like you said, it's not. It really is kind of just this ensemble story of this group trucking along. Well, is what it is. Bruce Greenwood, on the other hand, is the most interesting thing in the film, for my money. Yeah, and I would love to have seen the story of Meek's cutoff that really gave a lot more meat to all these characters, um, especially his, because I really wanted more of him. He was such a fascinating character. And Bruce Greenwood's just such a great actor. And this was like the last thing I expected to see him in, was playing this giant, you know, just a hairy, uh, you know, kind of a trapper explorer sort of guy i wanted uh what i wanted out of this film once he came out of the tent and you know kind of clears his throat and spits and adjusts his pants uh and you you really don't know that it's him through all the hair and the beard i mean he just looks great what i realized i wanted about 15 minutes into the movie is i want an unreliable narrator that is meeks and i want him telling the story of meeks cutoff the way he would tell it uh, if he's really a fraud who doesn't know where he's going. Like, that's the movie I want to see. And this was not that movie, but the Stephen Meek that I wanted was in there. Oh, yes. I agree with that much. Uh, the rest of everybody, with the exception of maybe Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano, uh, I I sort of munged together in my mind. They were all frontier people 
in long dresses and dirty clothes, and I didn't make a real connection with with them. They were interchangeable. Uh, it was only in looking up some of these folks afterwards that I realized, for example, Shirley Henderson as Glory White, she was moaning Myrtle, man. I know. I saw that too. That was the <laughs> that was exact awesome. credit that I clicked with. Yep. <laughs> it was fantastic. Been in a number of other things, and I think she was fine in, in this film. But again, because I didn't care, <laughs> I didn't make much of a connection with her. With her. Any notes on Shirley? No, and in fact, I, I don't know if I have any notes on anybody. And and weirdly, I think other than Bruce Greenwood, I would m- lump Michelle Williams into that munge of everybody. Yeah. Michelle Williams, Shirley Henderson, Neil Huff, Paul Dano, Zoe Kazan, Tommy Nelson, Will Patton, Rod Rondeau. Um, they all kind of played their part and, you know, it was minimal. It was, uh, I mean, you know, it, it was interesting to see. But other than Bruce Greenwood, none of them stood out to me. Well, then let's talk about getting it made, Andy. Cinematography was by Christopher, uh, how would you say that? Blauvelt? Blauvelt? Blofeld. Yeah. I think it's actually Blofeld. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he needs to do a Bond movie. Yeah, right? <laughs> uh, what did you think of the cinematography? I, I Again, I, I often have this challenge that, that sort of between cinematography and editing. Um, and so I, I feel like I have to lump my commentary together. Um uh, there is something to, I mean, this film is, it's telling the story that doesn't have a lot of variety to it from dramatic beat to dramatic beat. And the combination of that with a camera that doesn't, largely doesn't move, that is adept at showing large landscapes that, that takes, uh, uh, takes great time to, to show space, to show the wagon train moving across the horizon, or to show medium shots of people walking, or uh, of these sort of reverse tracking shots where people are walking toward the camera for long periods of time. Um, and editing choices that, uh, again, this was edited by uh, Kelly Reichardt herself, that uh, really leverage those long cuts with long dissolves and few cuts. And uh, I I find that combination to be deadly for my attention. As beautiful as it is to, you know, to to sort of watch the first 15 minutes, I think it's lovely. Um, it's, It's tough for me to stay attuned to the film because there's nothing visually that keeps me uh, that keeps me moving with it. When when there's nothing in the story that's keeping me hooked, there's got to be something in the camera that's keep that that keeps moving. And and I just I just didn't get it in this film. I thought it was lovely. It was way too dark. And man, I wish they had had taken advantage of the wide screen because the aspect ratio was miserable. Yeah, so many strange choices here. I mean, I I did like the color tinting that they did with the whole film, where it just kind of had kind of that. It's not really sepia, but it was just kind of this yellowish tint to everything that just made it all feel dry and pretty blech, which I thought was very fitting, actually, for the whole film. Um, But yeah, when it was dark and like you have one lantern lighting the scene, I mean, it's like really dark. Uh, Not quite not quite as uh, as muddy looking as it was in Wendy and Lucy, but still dark. And yeah, but the aspect ratio was such a strange choice. Um, And it. It goes to a lot of the decisions, I think, that uh, that surround this film. Why did they go with a 4 by 3 aspect ratio instead of really highlighting the landscape with a nice widescreen image? I think it was because in my head, I hear Kelly saying, this is an older aspect ratio. Nobody uses 4 by 3 anymore. Let's use it to signify an older time. 
we're telling a story about an older period. Let's use an older aspect ratio. Let's use this older style of cutting where a lot of stuff is played in these single shots rather than really quick, quick intercutting because it signifies an older time. And I think it even boils down to kind of the way that they did the movie poster. I think a lot of it boils down to that. And I just don't know if any of it really worked for me. Yeah, I wasn't I, I wasn't crazy about it. The uh, production design uh, was uh, David Dornberg and art direction by Kat Ulman and Seek. Uh, again, the production design, I think we've it, it's minimal, um, but the, it looked authentic to me. Was dirty, and one of the things uh, I found great was that that I noticed over and over again. They took real time to make sure that every actor's hands were filthy. <laughs> Did you notice that? Well, everything just felt kind of gritty and grimy, and that is something I really give them credit for. The world building here felt really authentic. These wagons felt like actual wagons that they were rolling around in. Um, the dirt, I mean, everybody just grimy and grungy all the time. I really enjoyed that aspect of this film. It felt wholly authentic. Yeah, Linda Andrews and David Kennedy are key makeup and key hairstylists. Uh, credit to Bruce's hair and Vicki Farrell for costumes. I thought the costumes looked great. Um, it, it did. It looked authentic. Um, not much to speak of in terms of effects or stunts, with the exception of the big wagon roll at the end, which was, yeah. you know, it was a wagon. It turned over, lost all its wheels. It was very sad. <laughs> um, Maybe that's the climax for you. That, that Well, it was. I mean, if you're going to have a climax, that's going to be the one when you lose the wagon. Going back to before we before we uh, move past the editing, I do want to just talk one or was one more comment about Kelly and her, and an editing choice that she made that I found so interesting. Sure. There's a scene where the uh, the wagon train kind of moves on by. And then once they're kind of out of frame, we start this really slow dissolve. We don't, it's almost like we don't even know it's dissolving. But then from the right side of the frame, we see a uh, person on a horseback kind of riding in way in the distance. But then all of a sudden they're riding like into the sky. And it's like, what? What is this? Is it like a, a spirit of a of a cowboy? Like that is somebody from the wagon train who died? Exactly what's going on here? But then you realize, oh, it's dissolving. It's just such a slow dissolve that it looks like these people are, are kind of uh, on the tr- wagon train in the sky before it finishes its dissolve and you realize, oh, they're just on a really distant hill back there. Um, very strange choice. And I wasn't sure if she was really trying to say something about, you know, the number of people that they had lost on the wagon train or if she was saying anything. Who knows? It was just an interesting uh, decision that she made. Yeah, I, I agree. I, that, those uh, It goes to this issue that I had with the film where the pacing suffers from some of these editing choices. I didn't need that. I didn't find it. Uh, I didn't get the symbolism. I was impatient. And that's easy to get uh, in a film like this. Yeah. I think if they had started where we actually got a little better sense of the characters, um, like Lawrence of Arabia, for example, which has some incredibly long shots and incredibly right. beautiful shots, but there's a lot more about the character before we get to those points. So we have more uh, more stake in the game. That's the that's that's the rub. the The sound is interesting. Sound and music, I, I would say, it, it were interesting, particularly coming off of Wendy and Lucy again, where there was such great leveraged use of the train sounds and squeaky wheels and things like that. Here, uh, there's a little bit of that in in the sound. We hear a lot of these sort of natural sounds of the the wheels and the wagon and the creaking wood, um, you know, crashing wood that comes out of the, um, you know, out of when she's throwing things out of the wagon. 
Dragon, as you already pointed out, um, there there's some you know just great sounds of fire and digging and and crushing ground, crushing earth. It it felt really very grounded and natural uh, to me. And then the music, I think Jeff Grace's score actually supplemented that pretty well in terms of a minimalist approach to sort of augmenting sound. What did you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I'm again. I, I'm a big fan of film score. I really enjoy uh, themes and and big scores, big music, um, and I enjoy some minimal scores too. Um, this is just so minimal that it's it's hard to give much or get much sense of its presence. But I do agree that the what was there of the score with the sound that was uh, throughout the film, it did kind of have a nice integration and and just kind of gave a sense of the the you know just i guess the emotional sense of things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well and that's what it is and you you can actually i mean the the score was released you can listen to it it's very minimal oh i believe it um i think it's i think it's like eight tracks and i i i sort of the the visual i have is you know somebody playing some sort of chords on a wind instrument while on a skateboard riding past you very slowly and then hitting themselves in the head with a kettle drum uh, it's that's kind of what it feels like, and it it's it's good. It's like it's more akin to a, like a, a guided meditation music than a film score. So um, I I actually listened through a lot of it, and uh, I find myself strangely attracted to it. Interesting. How this do at award season? This was a, it was kind of a festival darling. A lot of people uh, clicked with it. It had seven wins and eleven nominations at uh, all the different festivals and everything. Uh, at the Independent Spirit Awards, it did win uh, the Producers Award for Anish Savjani, um, and at Venice Film Festival, where it actually premiered, uh, Kelly was nominated for the Golden Lion. However, she lost to Sofia Coppola for her film Somewhere. Kelly did, uh, however, at the Venice Film Festival, win the Cygnus Award, S I G N I S, which it sounds from reading about it, it sounds like uh, a, an International Association of the Faithful is what uh, Cygnus is. And it sounds like an award through the Catholic Church that they give to to uh, to films that kind of represent just kind of the importance of human communication in culture. I'm not exactly sure why it was given to Kelly in this particular film, but there you go. Uh, how about the numbers? Did it make anything? It was a bigger film. I mean, I look at the behind-the-scenes stuff. It's definitely a bigger crew than we saw on uh, on the other, uh, Wendy and Lucy. When you're doing a period film, it definitely requires a lot more money for costumes, for production design. Uh, it's just there's so much stuff you have to... Uh, to build. I mean, you can't use anything that's modern. Uh, for Kelly's follow-up to Wendy and Lucy, she did get a bit more money like you were hinting at there. Uh, she got a cool $2 million, which is about $2.14 million in today's dollars. Unfortunately, this may not have been the film for the investors to double up on. Uh, the film had a two-screen release April 8th, 2011, opposite Hannah, the Arthur remake, Soul Surfer, and Your Highness, everybody's favorite pot comedy, Eventually, it made it up to 45 screens, but the film only made about 978,000 domestically and 892,000 internationally for a total of about 1.9 million or just over 2 million in today's dollars. This left the film with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $1,338. Luckily, it didn't keep Kelly from making films, as we will discuss next time. Outstanding. I think it's time. Let's jump right in, Andy, and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or you can just swipe over in your podcast show notes 
and you will find a link to uh, FlickChart. Just tap on that. It'll take you straight to this movie in FlickChart, and you can add it to your list, and let's see how it stacks up on our collection. All right, first off, we have Meek's Cutoff or The Road Warrior. Well, there's, road a, warrior for there's me. a Road Warrior <laughs> uh, road movie uh, head-to-head there. It's road, road Warrior for me. Absolutely. Meek's Cutoff or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Munchausen for me. <laughs> I am also Munchausen. Meek's Cutoff or The Emigrants, our last listener's choice episode. Now, that is a very fair pairing. I will still choose The Emigrants. I will, too. Meek's Cutoff or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, I'm delighted to hear your take on this. <laughs> I'm going with the monkeys and shy <laughs> in the trees. <laughs> Ant Hill. <laughs> I am also Indiana Jones. All right. Uh, wow. Meek's Cutoff or, I know, Meek's Cutoff or The Edge. Uh, no, intense the, the, Alec Baldwin yeah. and Alec Baldwin uh, and Hopkins. Uh, right. I'm, I'm The Edge. Me too. Meek's Cutoff or Scoop, Woody Allen's uh, magician disaster. <laughs> Woody and ScarJo, I am Scoop. I probably will say Scoop, although I don't, <laughs> I don't know if that's a smart decision here. There are literally hundreds of movies you will have to watch before you have to make this choice in real life, Andy. <laughs> hundreds. I'd say thousands, Pete. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Meek's Cutoff or Under the Cherry Moon... <laughs> Oh, Andy, I think it's really clear where I'm going. I know where you're going. I and really you are can't, too. though. You are, too. I can't. Yeah, you are. I really Come can't. on. No, I'm not. You I, chicken. I I, I'm not a chicken. <laughs> Come on. I am so sorry, Pete. I really am. I, We're at the just... bottom of the list, man. We're at the bottom of the list, and we've agreed on everything else, and you can't give me this. All right. I'll give it to you. How's that? <laughs> You the make stakes, me feel bad. The stakes are literally zero. And it's this much work to get you to cave. I know. Well, I, I was thinking about it. And it's it's the fact that at least I can laugh with Prince Under the Cherry Moon. <laughs> <laughs> or laugh at Prince Under the Cherry Moon is more like it. But, you know, at least I'm laughing. So, sure. I'll give it to you. <laughs> I know. I'm such a bastardo. All right. Meek's are. cut off. Or the women. I'm going to pick Meek's cutoff. <laughs> are you? Yeah. I actually am going to say the women. <laughs> <laughs> I would rather watch the the uh, the caddy drama. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. Okay. I And I, Andy, will give this to you. <laughs> Look at what gentlemen we are tonight. Oh, a gentleman bringing Kelly's film to the bottom of our list, 297, which is really funny because on Letterboxd, I don't rank it that low. It's just I didn't like it. Where did you Where did you end up on Letterboxd? What would you end up with? Two? Two and a half? I gave it two and a half because I felt like, I, and actually through our conversation, I actually feel like I'm demoting in half star. I think I'm going to drop it to two. Um, because, you know, I think that there's some interesting stuff going on here. Um, I just didn't care for it at all. See, I was going to say one and a half stars. You brought it down to two. I, I think I can be good with two. It's, it's, it's not a, it's like, a, half star, one star movie. And I can only say that because you have conned me into starting to watch a movie that's legitimately zero stars. Uh, <laughs> and so this, by comparison, I would absolutely watch Meek's Cutoff again and, and see if I can get some more 
uh, out of it. It's just not my. I, I think that's the that's the peril of our our ranking. This movie is is probably fantastic, and it's not for me. It is really not for me. Uh, I just didn't connect with it. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to where we go from here. But right now, I'm uh, I'll be a solid two star. All right. Well, there we go. Two stars. It is. Two stars it is. Okay, so speaking of that, next week we are wrapping up our Kelly Reichardt series uh, with her latest uh, uh, her latest co- uh, collaboration with Michelle. Uh, what is this film? That's right. It is Certain Women, which uh, just came out last year. It's I think it's set for a, a digital slash DVD release in July, although I don't know if they have actually confirmed that yet. Uh, so it might be a little tricky for people to track down right away and listen to but um certainly you'll have to check it out uh, or watch they could watch it i mean they could listen to it or watch it i'm saying you could they can listen to yeah there you go it's at home you could do whatever you want (laughs) yes right uh okay so i'm very excited to talk about that one we have both uh we both uh have seen it and so we're going to talk about it to wrap up this series uh and uh see uh, you know i'm i'm most excited to get back to uh a, a contemporary setting and hopefully there will be some more talking. Well, I'm curious to see exactly uh, what she does with it because it's kind of one of those stories with multiple stories all kind of interwoven. This one has three stories about three different women um, mm-hmm. whose lives kind of intersect. So uh, I'm curious to see how she handles that. All right, Andy. Well, uh, in, until certain women, whew, I feel like I've earned it. I gotta go to bed. All right, man. Well, I'm going to go take out my aggressions and I'm going to roll a wagon down a hill. (laughs) Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Now, this this movie, apparently there are many people who sided with uh, our take on the film. And so it skews negative in the star ratings. Uh, and so I think we're, we're both coming at this with a five star, aren't we? That's, yes, indeed we are. You want to you wanna kick it off? Yes, I've got a five star by Phoenix, who says, Hell is full of bears. <laughs> this movie is so relaxing. The scenery is beautiful. The talking is kept to a minimum. Often you can't hear or understand what is said. The constant squeaking of the wagon wheels is almost hypnotic. The ending is meant to be ambiguous. It kind of frustrated me at first, but I think I like it now. Definitely not a movie for all tastes, but I enjoyed it a lot. Oh man, that was good. I was right in there. I was right in there that whole time. It kind of, you know, it's, it lulls you, right? I would rather hear you read that review again. <laughs> <laughs> Can we put that on our flick chart? Andy reads reviews of Meek's Cut Off. Uh, my, uh, my review comes from uh, Catherine, April 25th, 2014, who says, Understated elegance. This is a thoughtful movie that will not appeal to people seeking excitement and thrills, nor will it satisfy people who want everything spelled out for them or who need to have the dilemmas of the characters resolved. The narrative follows the trials of a small group of travelers heading to Oregon along the Oregon Trail in the early part of the 19th century, but it is not about their trials. 
Director Kelly Reichardt sits back and watches these pioneers struggle against their trackless wilderness without, having to, without explaining anything about them or their ultimate fate. What the movie said to me was that we are all simply moving through life without all the information we need and with no guarantees that we will have outcomes we desire. All we have is our own perceptions about our experiences. Now, that, that, was, that was heavy, and she's kind of calling us out, isn't she? Apparently, Either we, she's calling us- <laughs> we are not thoughtful. We need excitement and thrills, and we are clearly not satisfied because we need everything spelled out for us. I would argue that perhaps uh, you know, her commentary on director Kelly Reichardt sitting back and watching the pioneers, maybe if there was less sitting back and more active directing, we could have had a, a film that we, <laughs> that we attached uh, to a little bit more broadly. You were saying, I'm <laughs> just laughing. <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks. Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August, 2022, We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 